Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. If there's one thing we all know for sure, it's that a lot of things are really wrong at work. We feel it every day in our own experience. The futility of setting annual performance goals that become irrelevant a month or two later. The stress of being rated and ranked on these goals come December. Working for bosses who highlight our shortcomings rather than our strengths and who hold the power to decide whether we have high potential or low potential. The latter which dooms any chances for growth or developmental opportunities well into the future. So many people go home at night feeling exhausted, unappreciated and defeated. They spend their days competing with teammates rather than having each other's backs, and they lack essential trust in their leaders, including in their own manager. And all of their dissatisfaction, of course, shows up in repeated studies that prove employee engagement and productivity aren't improving at all. A clear and continued sign that so much of how we think about and manage work is truly failing. So one big remedy, as we're about to discuss, is to put many of our traditional leadership theories and practices under the spotlight to assess if they're actually true and worth holding on to. And that's the work my guest Ashley Goodall and his co-author Marcus Buckingham have accomplished in their new best-selling book, Nine Lies About Work. So here are just a few of the nine lies that Buckingham and Goodall uncovered. One, managers are expected to call out all the places where employees need fixing when human beings respond far more positively to being praised for their strengths. Two, we believe people care a lot about which company they work for, when the truth is most really only care what team they work on. Three, we think deep and thorough planning is what leads teams to winning when coordinating performance in real time is what drives the greatest success. And four, we think only a limited number of people are capable of growing and inherently cast the majority of our employees aside. Now, I'm excited to be welcoming Ashley Goodall to the podcast to discuss as many of these nine lies that he and Marcus discovered. And we all know it's time to rethink organizational leadership and refuting many of the traditional beliefs organizations cling to is a really great place to start. As quick background, Ashley is currently the Senior Vice President of Leadership and Team Intelligence at Cisco and previously was the Director and Chief Learning Officer at Deloitte. And he's the co-author of the recent Harvard Business Review cover story, The Feedback Fallacy, which we'll soon discuss. On behalf of my audience, Ashley, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to have you and to kick things off. How about giving us the big picture of why you and Marcus wrote this specific book? So I suppose this comes out of work that Marcus and I have been doing for a number of years now. We, uh, in 2015, we wrote a piece that was in the Harvard Business Review about performance management and the, the dreaded annual performance review. And in doing that, we tried to take a fresh look at the topic. And in particular, we tried to say, well, what's the evidence? And more importantly, what's the right question? Everyone was sort of asking about, should we do ratings or not? And we instead said, well, behind that is another question. And the real question is, how do you get the best out of people at work? So we amassed our evidence on that, published the article. A little while after that, Harvard came back to us and said, all right, well, that was interesting. Evidence and what works in the real world and what's the right question. Could you apply that more broadly to the world of work? And that has resulted after, I think, 833 days of writing and editing and mm -hmm. a lot of other stuff in between in Nine Lives About Work, the book that we have today. How interesting that that's how it evolved, right? You start off thinking we're just going to make our statement with this article and then 
tell us more evolves into this. So what I'm hoping to do now for the next hour is to really capture as much of what you have written here. And I want to start off by pointing out that as you write, you've aggregated a lot of research begun by Gallup a couple of decades ago, and then more work has been done by other consultants like Corn Ferry and yourselves. And your big takeaway, one of the big takeaways, is that members of all high-performing teams agree to eight specific statements about how they are led and function. So I wanted to start off with those because I think these were really interesting to me. So tell us what they are and what their importance is. Yeah, so the first thing to notice about them, I'll show what they are in a moment. First thing to notice is that they are people rating their own experience, evaluating their own experience. So it's not, I think my manager is like this, or I think my company is like this. It's his, my daily experience of work. So the, the eight things, first one, I'm really enthusiastic about the mission of my company. Second one, at work, I clearly understand what's expected of me. Third, in my team, I'm surrounded by people who share my values. Fourth, I have the chance to use my strengths every day at work. Fifth, my teammates have my back. Sixth, I know I will be recognized for excellent work. Seven, I have great confidence in my company's future. And lastly, number eight, in my work, I am always challenged to grow. And those are the things where if you ask those questions of a group of high-performing teams and a group of low-performing teams or even average teams, they light up much more strongly, significantly more strongly on the high-performing teams and um, by the way, we've tested over the course of the years, Marcus has tested, I've tested many, many, many other questions. So it's not like there are eight more behind those eight. Those are the eight that light up. Mm -hmm. And there aren't any others that function in the same way in terms of giving us a sort of allowing us to locate the experience that distinguishes the best teams at work. And last thing to say is, when we say best teams, we don't mean the ones we like or, you know, the ones where we're friends with the team leader. We mean the ones that are most productive, that are most innovative, that are most collaborative, that produce the largest amount of sales. Whatever your definition of performance is at a given company, those eight things that I just shared, those are the characteristics that distinguish the experience on those teams. I love your language that they light up. Half of these, as you point out, relate to their communal experience of work, what's going on around them, and the other half to their personal direct experience. And I want you to comment on why that matters. Yeah, it speaks, I think, to a fundamental human need. At the moment, we're talking about it at work, but I don't think it's necessarily limited to that. And the need is, number one, I want the world to see me for who I am to see me for what's unique about me and, by the way, to value that, to put that to good use, to see it, put it to good use, value it. That's what we mean by I know what's expected of me. That's where I get to use my strengths every day at work. I'm recognized for excellent work, which, of course, is my work, and I'm challenged to grow in my way is sort of in parentheses at the end of that. So we want to be seen for who we are valued for who we are, leaned on for who we are. Those are sort of the me things. We call them in the book, the best of me things. And then the, the communal ones speak to our need, I think, to be surrounded by people who support us and lift us up. 
And so those are, you know, a couple of examples, my teammates have my back or there's a notion of a, if you like, a shared sense of excellence. I'm surrounded by people who share my values. And by the way, when you look at that question, that people don't answer that in terms of religious or political values. At work, when you say, do your teammates share your values? I'm surrounded by people who share my values. Where people go is, do we have a shared understanding of what great work looks like, what we're all striving for together? And it's the togetherness that we call then the best of we that's the other need. So we want to be seen for who we are and surrounded by people who support us in doing our best work. That's what seems to be the secret source, if you like, of a great team. So I want to pin a couple of things down that you said. One is that you said, I I want the world to notice me. But aren't you really saying I want my manager, my boss and my organization to notice me? It's interesting. It's a good point. That sort of brings us into this question of culture and company and what is the world at work. One of the themes of the book is that the world at work in practical terms is a very local world. You don't spend much time with people at your company outside of the one or two or three teams that you work on. And so, yes, when I say I want the world to see me, where that starts and where most of it happens is the people I work with every day. And that seems to be the driver of our experience of work and also our performance at work. So one of the eight you just highlighted is my teammates have my back. And as I was reading that, I was thinking, I wonder how many people in their workplaces feel that, that there's this sort of overt emphasis on collaboration and having people looking out for you rather than looking for the opportunity to be critical or unsupportive when things don't go well for you. There's sort of a a pivot here that's very unique to me in many places. And so I'm hoping you'll kind of give some insight on that. Is it unique or is this commonplace that people feel that they have each other's back? It's actually quite hard in my experience to achieve it. Certainly, if you don't set out to achieve it, Mm. if you as a team sit down, and by the way, one of the lovely things about these questions is that they are useful for a team leader. And we suggest in the book that, you know, you can go ask your team all of these questions once a month and note their answers and have a discussion with them about it. If a team sits down and says, all right, we've measured ourselves against these eight, against this yardstick, and we really want to work on increasing our sense that we are supporting one another, that we have one another's backs, there are some things to do for sure, but they take more effort and more focus. And it's particularly hard, by the way, for teams that are spread out around the world or a leadership team of a large organization where each person on the team has a different portfolio. And it turns out that one of the challenges with having the backs of the people around you is finding their backs, is knowing where their backs are. If you've got one small team and it's working on a project together and it has to exchange information very, very frequently to do its work, it's a little bit easier to find people's backs because you know what they're doing every day. Mm -hmm. If, on the other hand, you're on some sort of an executive team where everybody has a different portfolio, unless you make it a deliberate focus, it's easier to not know what everybody's doing every day and therefore not to be able to support them in that however much you might want to. 
can you, I know the answer to this, but I'd love to hear your insight on it. Can you still have a culture where people challenge one another on their ideas and the direction, the strategy and the tactics and still have each other's back? Yeah, that's what it looks like very often. If I have your back, I don't want you to fail, essentially. I mean, I want to support you in your success, but probably firstly, I want to make sure you don't fail. So yes, if that involves maybe challenge is sometimes a strong word, but if that involves having saying, have you thought of this or did you explore this or can I help with this? That's very often what it feels like. What's interesting is that on the best teams that will be received as a sign of support and on less good teams that will be received as a sign of unsupport, if you like, which is to say that the best teams integrate the eight things. The best teams have spent so much time with one another, are so curious about one another, have shared who they are as people, have shared what's going on outside work, that you build trust. And in an atmosphere without trust, an identical question can come across as unsupportive. In an atmosphere with trust, it can come across as the very essence of support. Well, it very much starts with your intention, right? One is, I want to help this person, so I'm going to give them alternative ways of seeing things, as opposed to, I want to see this person not succeed or even fail, and so I'm going to be critical of their approach. That's kind of the essence of what you're saying. Yeah, and it depends on somebody's read of your intention. Because, of course, you can have the best will in the world, but if somebody mistakes that and thinks that you're being critical, you know, the reaction is theirs. And, uh, you know, if you imagine, let's go to the sort of extreme, you imagine a team that has a team meeting every other month and really doesn't talk very much in the meantime. People who don't know one another very well, it's much easier to misread the intent of people around you. We talk a lot in the book about frequency of interaction and it seems to be that frequency is a glue for a team leader team member relationship and also for a team to team to team you know an inside team relationship if you're not talking very often all sorts of other things are going to fall by the wayside including your ability to understand where your teammates are coming from excellent we're going to come back to that point i want to say that in reading your book that there were a lot of epiphanies. There were a lot of some really surprising thoughts that you had, and I'm hoping we're going to dig into almost all of them. But one of them is that you say that people, all of us, were attracted to companies and their advertised cultures. So we think, okay, I'd love to work for this organization. But then once we join that organization, that we really start caring much more about what team we're on. And so what explains that shift and why is it important to managers? I suppose it's really a shift in perspective. From the outside of a company, you can't actually see what it's like on the inside. You can see in general terms what the company says about itself, what people who work there say about it on, you know, Glassdoor or any number of other places. But those things are either the company trying to emphasize how much it cares about the people stuff, which is, by the way, not a bad thing. It just doesn't tell you enough. Or it's a sort of random sampling of people who've chosen to post on a you know, job board. Mm -hmm. Both of those are pale away, pale into insignificance, I think, when you join and you walk through the door and you sit down with your team. Because all of a sudden, you're not looking at the few data points you can get from the outside that might address the company in general. Now you've gone to one particular 
town square, if you like, inside the whole city of the company, and you find the people in that town square, and they are who they are, and they behave how they behave, and that then becomes your experience of the company. So what is the manager to take from that? So the first thing is, if manager or not, if you're thinking of joining a company, the key question is, what do you do here to build great teams? Because you need to know as a candidate that the company has realized, firstly, that your experience is going to be predominantly a local team experience and has put some thought into how to optimize that and make that rewarding for you. And then for managers, for team leaders, understand that your job with respect to the people inside an organization is to understand what it is that makes a great team to understand what it is that your particular team needs from you right now to make it a great team and then to realize that that's your job that's a hundred percent of your job as a team leader is to help the team flourish does the manager also have a responsibility to fundamentally understand what the cultural values are of that organization that brand promise and to incorporate that and to ensure that they're sustaining it within their teams? You know, I'd say to the extent that that's an actual thing that you can do in the real world. (laughs) So, you know, cultural brand promises, leadership principles, all the sorts of stuff that companies like to put on laminated cards can be actually, when you push on them, a little bit hard to put into practice in terms of, well, what should I do differently if I subscribe to this? So I don't know, let's pick one. Companies like to talk about having, say, a culture of innovation. So you're a team leader. There are, I don't know, pick eight human beings in front of you in your town square. You know that they need attention to who they are as individuals. You know that you need to work on how we all are together. Now then, having done that, now turn your attention to culture of innovation. What should you do differently? It's actually not very clear. If I were confronted with that, I would say, well, innovation is going to come from these people being able to bring forth their best ideas and hear one another's best ideas. But that then takes me back to the best of we and the best of me. So we are, I think, sometimes a little lazy about our cultural prescriptions in companies. And we like to make broad statements. Lazy or insincere? I couldn't possibly tell you. I can tell you the result is statements which are actually kind of hard to act on on a daily basis. Whereas the reality, the gritty reality of a team is, I think, very easy to understand. It's not always easy, of course, to figure out the best path for everybody. That's why great team leadership is kind of a rare thing. But at least you know what you're up against. At least you know what's in front of you every day. So at Cisco, are you using these eight questions and measuring at the manager level, individual manager level, and seeing how people stand? Yes. Every team wants a quarter. Once a quarter. Uh-huh. So if, for example, I happen to be one of the managers in the, and I don't want to pick a, a percentage, but let's just say in relationship to all managers at Cisco, I happen to be low. What then is the prescription for me? Well, what we've done is very, very careful. Firstly, we have said to all of our team leaders, we're not going to look at your scores. They're not for us in the corporate center, if you like, they're for you. Mm -hmm. So firstly, your scores don't go anywhere. There's nobody looking over your shoulder. Now, I will pull them out in aggregate to do research on them because that's part of my role, but I don't look at any individual's team leaders' scores. Secondly, the results are delivered to you and nobody else. 
So in our platform that we use to do all of this, once all of your team members have responded, you get your scores back. You can then get coaching, you can then get a discussion guide, you can get all sorts of helpful materials. What we suggest is that people have a discussion with their team, share the scores with their team, and then at upcoming team meetings, spend a while to talk about, okay, what do we feel good about? Where do we want to create change? So that the team owns this. What we're trying to do is not evaluate people, but enable and empower people. And so the data is of the team for the team. And we design it that way very deliberately. So I get my score. I'm also getting it in context, right? So I do know that in relationship to other managers that I'm low or don't I? You know, we put in the system, we have a benchmark of Cisco top 10%, Cisco median, Mm -hmm. Cisco bottom 10%. You can look at that if you want. The best benchmark, though, is your team last time you asked the questions. Because actually, every team leader wants to know, do I have this on the right track or not? Are we moving in the right direction? So your team now versus your team last time is actually, I think, the most useful benchmark for any team, because that conversation, when you do it four times a year or maybe even more, that conversation begins to have its own memory. We tried this last time. That sort of worked. That didn't work. We want to do more of this. We want to do less of this. And the point is that from the center, I cannot and no one else can say to each team, here's what you should do. We can say in a useful and simple way, here's how you're doing in creating an experience that we know leads to other things that we all want. But I can't tell you what to do. I can, however, tell you how to talk about what to do and come up with that for each team in the context of its particular circumstance and moment in time. I mean, that's an extraordinary amount of trust that you're putting in the managers. You're saying, starting from where you are, get better. And here's the metrics. Here's the report card. But we're trusting that you, along with the people on your team, are going to work together to become better managers over time. Is that my understanding correct? I would say that every company in the world has already placed that amount of trust in its team leaders by making them team leaders. I think we sometimes sort of fool ourselves that we actually know what's going on in every conversation, in every team across a whole large organization. And of course, that's an impossibility. The second that you make somebody a team leader, you are entrusting them with creating a great experience that allows people to prosper for not driving people out the door. The trust is already there. The question is for any company, What are you doing to honor the trust you've placed in people and to enable them to do more of the sorts of things that will work? We're trying to lean into the trust that we've already placed in people by asking them to lead our teams. Well, but I'm going to call it out that most organizations aren't doing that. They might say we trust you, but if you have somebody in the lower third and they've been in the lower third for a couple of quarters, most organizations are going to give that manager a scolding or counseling or maybe reassign them. And you're really saying, hey, we're going to remind these managers that you're always going to be a work in progress and we're going to help you get better by giving you metrics, by giving you coaching, by giving you support, by giving you insight. But what we're not going to do is come in and judge every step of the way. That's very unique. Well, and just to say, my feeling is that even the organizations who might say, you know, you're not doing very well, we're going to come in and do A, B, and C, unless they ask that person not to be a team leader, they're still trusting them with a team. 
um, it's sort of like you can get, you know, my son, William, is, is 17, is about to take his driving test. And, you know, I've got an app that will tell me how fast the car has gone and mm-hmm. whether it's gone anywhere I didn't want it to go. So I presume that, you know, I could sit down one evening with William, my son, and say, you didn't drive the way I wanted you to. But until I take the car keys away, I'm still trusting him to drive. That's the difference. Evaluation after the fact, unless you recognize that somebody in the position of team leader is, by definition, being trusted with a part of the success of your company, I think you're deluding yourself. Well, I'm pinning this down because I think it's remarkable that you're doing it, and I commend it. I think it's absolutely fantastic. And when people feel that deeply trusted, I think they've become much more motivated to get better. I'll tell you, the difficult thing about it is that it is unusual enough that, you know, when we first started this a few years ago, I think some folks were like, hang on, you're doing, you're, no, that can't be right. Mm-hmm. Are you Really? You're trusting me? Mm-hmm. And it's such as the climate inside our companies that people expect to be second guessed and expect to have somebody looking over their shoulder exactly. and expect to be, you know, if I step out of line, someone's going to come and zap me. That for us to turn around and say, look, we can't control what you do every day and we shouldn't control what you do every day because we can't see what you're faced with every day. So, yeah, we've made you a team leader. We're trusting you to build great teams and here's some help in doing that. I think some people were surprised by that. But as you can tell from the way I'm describing it, I think that's to recognize a necessary truth of organizations and to lean into it helpfully as opposed to anything else. Very well done. I want to go back to something that you mentioned a few minutes ago, which is the importance of checking in with people. Talk to us about what that means and why you say this is the most important part of managing people. So there are a few parts to this. Um, When we say check-in, we mean a weekly conversation between a team leader and a team member about the work that's just around the corner usually about the work that's in front of somebody that week. What you discover when you look at the evidence is that, firstly, people do better when they get attention to their work. So a check-in conversation is sort of the opposite of an old-fashioned one-on-one. I don't know whether you remember those, but we all, sure. you know, when I was growing up, I was taught, well, you should have a one-on-one, and you bring to the list, if you're the team leader, bring to the list a list of things that you want the team member to do and read out your list and make sure they understand and then they're allowed to leave. This is that turned upside down. This is the team member saying, here's what I need. Here's what my priorities are for the week. Here's what I need from you. Here's what I loved and loathed about the week just passed so that we begin to understand. I begin to share my emotional reaction to the work because we actually know that that's a very important part of building a great team. And for that to work, for that to be real, it's got to be frequent because work changes the whole time. If you do a monthly check-in conversation with somebody, already you're talking in the abstract. What are you going to get done in the next month? Well, I know pretty well what I'm going to do in the next day, fairly well the next week. And after that, it's guesswork. And then if you ask me to do that, I'll come up with a whole bunch of important sounding words like strategic and initiative and key project and stuff like this, which isn't real work. That's those are just pretty words. So to meet people where they're at, you need to talk to them frequently. And we have found in our research, I've done this research at Cisco. I did it back at Deloitte as well. My co-author Marcus has done it in a number of different places that the frequency of those conversations drives 
the experience on the team and drives the answers to the eight questions that we started our discussion with. So people thrive under productive attention to what's in front of them and how they're experiencing their work. And the attention's got to be frequent if it's going to make a difference. So, I mean, you even say that frequency trumps quality. And so my question is, you just mentioned it, is this the emotional connection to work? Is it just my manager cares about me so much that he or she is making, you know, the highest priority to meet with me every week under no circumstances? Are they not going to? Does that go right to the heart in people? Pretty much. I mean, part of it is about predictability, by the way, and the world is an uncertain and changing place. And so it's very good to find predictability in it. And if you know your team leader is going to pay attention to you and you have a live conversation with you about what you want, your agenda once a week, that's incredibly helpful. So it does go to predictability, but it also does go to somebody sees me at work and it goes to I know if I need something, I, I can go to this place for it. And what I found in my experience is that once you've established that as a habit, if you like, or a ritual, the conversations broaden. If you don't know that you're going to talk to your team leader once a week and you have a question about your career, say, what do you do? Do you reach out and put something on the calendar? What's the subject line of the meeting invitation? Career conversation? Oh, my goodness me. Those things get pushed into next week because those seem to be less important, don't they? Or if you say, you know, development conversation or I want to have a long range conversation with you. It's actually practically a little tricky to schedule those and make them happen. However, if the time on the schedule is already there because you've agreed contracted that you're going to have a weekly conversation and a couple of days before you think to yourself gosh i'd really like to ask my leader this question or i'd really like to know their reaction to an idea i have about where i might go next there's no extra work so what tends to happen is that once you've established the frequency then the content blossoms inside those conversations because you know it's a predictable place you know you've got a place to go if you have questions or you need guidance or you just want to talk something through with somebody so the frequency is the key for sure you tell a very compelling story about why millennials are more interested in snapchat than facebook and it's in the context of we don't really want feedback which is one of those stunning points that you make in the book. Tell us the story briefly and what you've concluded about feedback. It's funny. There was a moment in time a few years ago where Facebook was trying to provide more ways for people to give feedback on a post. And they tested, I think, six new emojis or maybe the, the original like that we all know so well. Plus, I think there were five others and it was you know happy sad angry girl something like that <laughs> and they put a huge amount of work into testing these and thought these were really going to take off put them out in the world and hardly anyone used them meanwhile in parallel another company had managed to create a social network which is of course a very hard thing to do because social networks get an installed base of users and then it's very hard to be a social network with two users you need to understand how to scale before it's useful to anybody it's like the uh, the old joke about what value is one fax machine and the answer is none at all <laughs> and there i go dating myself but this other social network grew very quickly to about 200 million users who skewed young i mean it was gen z gen y and 
the interesting feature about it was that you couldn't give anybody feedback at all. There wasn't even a like button, never mind six flavors of like or dislike button. And of course, the name of the social network was Snapchat. And Snapchat said, look, what people are after is not feedback. They're after an audience. They're after a way to share what they see in the world and meet their audience. And that's all. And we don't want a record and we don't want to be leaving digital footprints wherever we go. The irony of all of this The lesson of Snapchat, of course, is that people want attention, not feedback. And those are two very different things. But the irony of all of this is that, meanwhile, over in the corporate world, companies say to themselves, oh, my goodness, me, look at millennials and their use of social media. They are craving feedback. And so we create a whole bunch of automated, crowdsourced, always-on, digital, app-enabled feedback tools that in fact is exactly the wrong lesson that one should draw from looking at the world of social media. So pin down what is the lesson to be taken and what should managers know from this? The lesson is people want, people need attention and particularly attention to what they've done well. That might sound like a a sort of optimistic or soft prescription, if you like. I think there are many folks out there who think, listen, my value as a manager is I can sit down and look somebody in the eye and tell them what's wrong with them. If you look at the science on how humans grow, if you look at the science on how we learn, if you look at the neurochemistry that gets triggered by particular conversations, you find out that while mistake fixing is one thing, from time to time, all of us as team leaders We'll need to help somebody get back on the rails or tell them they've missed a step or tell them something they didn't know. That that sort of mistake fixing only takes you from bad to not bad. And to get from good to magnificent, you need a different technology. And the technology is attention to people at their best and almost interrogation of people at their best. Hey, you just did that thing. What were you thinking That really has an important, a profound impact on me. It made me feel like this, this, and this. What were you thinking? What was going through your mind? Have you done it before? Might you be able to do it again? That's the attention that produces growth in a human being. Thank you for fleshing that out. And I want to go to the inverse of this, which is really that, and I think you make this point in the book very clearly, that we humans are instinctively driven to call out people's faults, especially when you make me a manager, we even become sort of more critical of shortcomings. And we somehow convinced ourselves that this is the role of management is to point out our shortcomings and what people are doing that limit them. And you're saying, stop that. Yeah. And the first thing to understand is that that instinct to ward off failure, if you like, comes from a place of fear. It comes from a place of, goodness me, if this continues to go wrong, failure will occur. I must stop that, Hmm. which makes sense when you know that failure is about to occur. You have to be a little bit careful with this because somebody not doing something the way you would do it doesn't mean it's a failure. It just means they're a different human being and they have their own way of doing things. So in the book, we say, look, get into the outcomes business. Don't worry, don't be in the means business, be in the ends business. Don't be focused on how your people do things, but be really clear on the outcomes that you need to see and then help each person find their own way to those outcomes because their way will be different from everyone else's way. But yes, we seem to move through the world as though 
people are like our machines or our computer code, that when they are finite and organized and predictable, and when a part of a process or a machine or a piece of code breaks, you have to find the bit that's broken and fix it, and then you get healthy function again, which is to say we treat the world as though people are toasters. And people aren't toasters. Surely the world would be a, a lot simpler if, if they were. Also, I think, depressing and not so much fun. The wonder of the world that we walk around in is that everybody is different and brings different things to the table. And so the question for a team leader is, how do I understand what you are all about? What are the patterns of thought and behavior in your brain? Which way are you going to jump in a given situation? What energizes you? What do you run towards? And how can I knit that across a team into something that's useful, something that enables all of us to do together what none of us could do alone? So let me put you on the spot and ask you to weigh in on companies like Netflix and Bridgewater, which are very prominently calling for radical candor and that word radical honesty that really truly defines their culture. So I'm wondering from your point of view, do human beings benefit and grow from having peers, moreover managers routinely grading their performance on these long 60 attribute scales and receiving a steady dose of critical feedback from their peers? Is this a good thing or a bad thing? It's interesting, isn't it, how many adjectives we have to pile up to make our point about how rigorous and macho this whole thing is, right? You have to say radical candor. You have to say candid. We're shouting. Why are we shouting so loudly? To answer your question, do human beings benefit from having critical feedback? If that feedback helps them fix objective errors, you missed a step in the process, you had a fact you didn't know, you missed on the outcome. Benefit in as much as that helps you remediate an error. But error fixing is different from excellence making. You can't remediate your way to excellence. Excellence doesn't work like that. Excellence is as idiosyncratic as the excellent person. No one can give some other human being the recipe for excellence. So you can't fix your way to excellence. So do people benefit from mistake fixing to the extent it helps them avoid mistakes? Yes. Do people grow from having people grading their performance, answering questions about them the whole time, floods and tides of feedback? Do people grow from that? No. Why do we think it does all of a sudden? Why is this popping up as being such a credible way? And then, you know, the big conflict that I have in my mind is these are very successful organizations. And so you would think if you were doing things that would be destructive to the spirits and people and to their motivation, that somehow that would translate into performance. But we obviously know Netflix has been a high performing stock for the last 10 years. Bridgewater is a very successful company. So what am I missing here? Well, I mean, at Bridgewater, I think the 18 month attrition rate is something like 30% right now. So in terms of the company performance, employee attrition, you're talking about not customer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Employee attrition. I think the question is not how are these companies doing, but how well could they be doing? The job of a company with regard to its people, if you like, is, you know, companies like to think of themselves as maximization machines. 
And so you have to say, look, look at the evidence on human performance. Look at the evidence on how a brain grows. Look at the evidence on excellence. There's plenty of evidence that filling a company with critical evaluative feedback is not moving the needle on those things. I think the question is, for all of these companies leaning into this, are you maximizing what you have in front of you? Thank you. I want to get into the meat of that article, which, by the way, is what brought me to you. It's a fantastic article, the Harvard Business Review article, and it really pins down that none of us are really all that great at evaluating the performance of other people. And yet we use 360-degree assessments and nine-box potential exercises. We're grading people on a five-point scale. And you think all of these are a huge fail. So tell us why you think we can't, in a nutshell, condense that article, why we can't reliably rate other people as managers and why you believe these tools are useless. And I guess I'd ask the next question, which is, what do you do instead? So there's quite a lot to unpack there, Mark. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Um, I'm ambitious. So the, uh, the first thing, why do I think? I don't think. The evidence says, when you look at the evidence on people rating other people, that we're horribly unreliable raters of other people. What does that mean to make that practical and specific? It means that if you ask me to rate somebody on my team and I give them a certain pattern of scores – and then you asked me to turn a little bit to one side and rate somebody else on the team, you would expect that the pattern of scores would change because I'm looking at a different person now. What you discover when you look at the evidence is that the pattern of scores moves with me and stays pretty consistent from person to person to person, which is to say the pattern is driven by me, who I am as a rater, how I use a scale, what I understand the things I'm rating somebody on to mean, whether I'm a harsh rater or a lenient rater, whether I'm a whether I use one little clump of scores, whether I use the whole scale. And that evidence, that the evidence of that pattern, which is called the idiosyncratic rater effect, goes back 20 years now. And it's been uncovered, you know, this is not single sourcing one study. There is a lot of academic literature explaining this effect and reconfirming this effect. So the first thing you have to understand in the world of 360s and nine boxes and five point scales and all of this is that what we're actually capturing is um, mainly about the people doing the rating and very little about the people being rated. Um, the studies estimate that somewhere around 60%, if you look at across a number of different studies, 60% of the variability in the scores I would give you are actually a function of who I am and are nothing to do with you. So the first thing you have to say with all of the assessments and boxes and rating scales is that they're not generating good data. And yet we use this data to evaluate people, to promote people, to move people around, to inform any number of decisions that impact directly on people's careers and prosperity. And that should give us, I think, pause, especially that it's not a secret either. This has been an, a well-established fact, as I said, for a couple of decades, and we haven't really confronted it in the world of work. The fix the way to generate reliable data, and by the way, when I say reliable, I mean data that doesn't wander around of its own accord, if you like. The fix is to ask me not to rate you, but to rate me. I am actually a reliable judge, a reliable reporter of my own emotional state and future intent, not my own ability. There was a lovely piece in the Times the other week 
in the New York Times that looked at how we evaluate our abilities on certain tasks. And, you know, the most famous example is that three quarters of people think they're above average at driving. Drivers. Mm -hmm. Which can't be true. So we're interestingly poor and unreliable raters of our own ability. But if I ask you what you're feeling right now, you can tell me that. If I ask you again tomorrow and your feeling hasn't changed, you will report that again. That's the definition of reliable data. It doesn't change when the thing we're measuring hasn't changed. If I ask you what you're going to do next or what you're going to do with respect to somebody at work, what actions you plan, you're a great and reliable reporter of those things. So to make that practical again, what that means in terms of how we measure talent is that we need to ask each team leader what they would do in response to what they're seeing in another person. Do you always go to this person for excellent work? Would you promote this person today if you could? Those sorts of questions where you're saying to the manager, what is your either your emotional reaction to this person or your future intent, near-term future intent with respect to that person? Then you get good data. Then you can aggregate that then you can put that in dashboards then you can use that to do research then then you can understand patterns of performance we need to flip our questions so that when we want to understand how a manager sees performance you ask a manager not about the performer but about the manager's reaction to that performance and that is sounds a subtle difference but that is all the difference so I read that article. It says that we all think we're infinitely funnier than we are. Professors think they're all in the upper quarter in terms of their effectiveness as professors and on and on it goes. So the boiled down point is that we see ourselves as much more successful and effective in all aspects of life and, is, and including driving than is actually true. So are you saying that our feelings are more accurate than our thinking? Yeah, so I think the net of that article was we tend to be overconfident when we're rating our abilities at tasks we're familiar with and underconfident at tasks we're unfamiliar with. So familiarity has some relationship with the accuracy of our ratings of ourselves, right? So the pull through from that is you are intimately familiar with the whole time how you're feeling and what you're about to do. There's no mystery. There's no mystery if I say to you, how are you feeling right now? You don't have to go, well, I'm not very familiar with what that is, so let me take a guess, or I'm really familiar, so let me take a, an over-optimistic guess. You know exactly how you're feeling right now. You know exactly what you're intending to do right now, and if I focus that for you, and I say, for example, Mark, do you intend to have Ashley back on your podcast in the near future? You know the answer to that question right now. And your answer is an accurate answer because I'm asking you what you intend to do. If I can turn the accuracy of that into utility by giving you a few simple questions, not about having guests on a podcast, but if you're a team leader, about having team members on a team, then I can collect good data and then I can act on it knowing that it's solid and it's reliable. So, yes, I'd like to have you come back on the podcast. <laughs> but, but, but before I get to that, just to pin this down for the audience here, I mean, we do have these sort of standards, 360, 
there's huge industries out there making a fortune of doing these within organizations and quarterly and annual reviews on these five point scales, which you say, by the way, that we don't use the ones and the twos very often. So it's really a three point scale. Are you saying get rid of all that and just rely on this methodology? What's the ultimate recommendation? Yeah, get rid of them. Okay. Get rid of them. They don't contain good data. They're not helping anybody. And by the way, if you've ever been on the receiving end of one of these and you've gotten a 360 report, your reaction is always, what does this mean? What is this, what is this big jumble of scores? I don't, I don't see myself in these. If you've ever been told, well, you're in box six on the nine box or you're a three on a five point rating scale, your reaction generally fairly soon is, you haven't seen me for who I am. There's no human here. It's just a bunch of scores. And the scores don't seem to relate to who I am. So it does bring us all the way back to the original eight questions. We need to be seen. And we deserve, frankly, to be seen for who we are at work and valued for who we are at work. When our employers share with us data that we don't recognize using methods that are flawed and use that to evaluate us, promote us, pay us, move us out, that's an inhuman experience. It's bad data science, but it's also inhuman. So, yes, we should stop that. You use that word in the book. And, you know, it, just in listening to you now, I'm attributing the same reaction that I think our audience is having is, is that this passes the taste test. We've all been on that side where you wonder, how did that person evaluate me based on that? Like, where did they come up with that? And what does that mean? And what am I supposed to do with it? And so I think it's very, very accurate. But again, you're taking us in a direction that very few organizations are going today. So this is very much food for thought. And as we're getting close to the wind down here, I really want to dig into leadership here with you because you make some really powerful statements about that, too. And you say that the ability to lead other human beings is rare, which if I had the plug bell, I'd ring it for you right now because I absolutely agree with that. And we need to hold really excellent managers in higher esteem, I think, because of how rare that ability is. But you also say that there's no formula for being a great leader, that there's no, in your language, no magical set of attributes that all leaders share. So give us guidance on how to choose managers. How do we select managers knowing this? What do you look for in candidates? And is there anything binary? You know, is there any automatic deal killers? Are you looking for some quality that if you don't see it, you won't hire them? Yeah, we like to create lists of things that all leaders we think have strategic thinking, execution, executive presence, authenticity, vulnerability, these sorts of things. And there seems to be a cottage industry devoted almost entirely to coming up with the ever better list of leadershipy things. But if you look at leaders in the real world, you find very quickly that recognized leaders don't have all the things on the list, very often don't have many of the things on the list. A lovely little example, you know, we like to put ethical leadership. We say, well, that's always important. And I suspect there's not a company in the world that doesn't have ethics somewhere on its leadership model because it would be kind of weird not to if what sort of a signal would that send. However, you look at Steve Jobs, who used to buy a new car every six months so as to avoid having to register it so that he would only have temporary plates so that he could park it in the handicapped parking spot at the grocery store without getting a ticket. And you say, well, where is, where is ethics there? That's theft. 
that's stealing a space and then avoiding a fine. This is a very wealthy man. Why would you go to so much deliberate trouble? What does that say about ethics? You keep going down the list. You know, we talk about today's servant leadership a lot. You look at somebody like George Patton, the, the Second World War leader, who was, of course, infamous for going into a military hospital and physically assaulting two of his soldiers who had PTSD. Mm. And there are many more examples where these come from. You have to say, well, were these people not leaders? Of course they were leaders, but then they didn't have all the things in the model. So does that make all the things in the model optional? What on earth is going on? The simplest way I know to resolve the conundrum is to say leaders have only one thing in common. What they have in common is that they all have followers. If no followers, no leader. If you want to know whether you're leading, look behind you. If there's no one there, you're not a leader. And so the real question is understand the experience of the followers. What do followers see in you? What do they hook on to? Why do they give you their extra effort? Why do they move you to the front of the queue? And what the evidence suggests is that what we hook on to in a leader is some well-defined, well-understood level of ability in and a high level of ability in something that we care about. So back to Steve Jobs, if you were somebody who cared about creating beautiful self-contained technology that everybody in the world wanted to use, you follow Steve Jobs and you don't care where he parks his car. If you're somebody who cares very much about fighting whatever is in front of you on a given day on the battlefield, you follow George Patton and you don't very much care about what he did in the in the military hospital or it's not that you don't care it's that you choose to overlook it mm -hmm. you choose to forgive it because of what you've hooked on to so what we follow in a leader is their spikiness we follow the spikes we hook on to the fact that they've taken themselves so seriously they're deep in something and they know what that something is if you like and that is what gives us as followers confidence in the future. It gives us predictability. We know which way you're going to jump. We trust that you've taken yourself seriously. That's what we follow. So to answer the question, what do you look for in a candidate for a leadership role? I'm deep in something and I know what that something is. I have an appetite for this thing. I'm deeply curious about it. Of course, the best one, if you're looking for a team leader, is leadership, which isn't a thing, but the act of leading a team. I'm deeply into the people around me. I'm deeply into figuring out what's special and unique about each person and then how to meld that into a collective group, if you like. So you look for appetite. You look for people who know what they're deep in and can explain that and can explain why, because those are the ingredients of attracting followers. And I think there are very few automatic deal killers, although I did interview a, a candidate for a role once who then, after I'd interviewed him, I went downstairs and asked the receptionist, how did this person treat you? And they said very poorly. And so he didn't get a call back mm -hmm. <laughs> because th that, that, that for me was a, was a sign that this person wasn't sharing their whole self with me for sure, but they shared it when they thought that no one was watching. Very good. Ashley, I'd like to break away from our discussion for a moment and transition into a podcast tradition we call the heartbeat round. And with a goal of gaining an even greater glimpse into what influences you in your life and what makes you unique as a human and as a leader, I have a series of questions which all require quick, instinctive, and brief answers. So just to pin it down, I'm going to ask you a question. Your job is to give me an answer in a heartbeat. You ready to go? Got it. 
Okay. Cultural value every organization should have. Uh, teams matter most. One book that profoundly changed your life. First Break All the Rules by my wonderful co-author, Marcus Buckingham. Meditation practice, yes or no? No. Cocktail hour, yes. <laughs> Same effect. <laughs> A person who's still alive that you'd most like to meet. Uh, Barack Obama. I actually met Barack Obama. Uh, the thing that makes you spiky as a leader. I I can I can get to the essence of something of work or of life in a way that others find compelling, clarifying. So I get to the essence. I'm a instinctive optimist, so I always think there's a better way, and I believe in people. And you could never take that out of me. So I think those three things, sort of distillation plus optimism, plus faith in humanity, if you like. That's what I've got going on. Newspaper or magazine you never miss reading? New York Times. A philosopher or thinker who gave you your greatest understanding of human beings? Mm, I'm going to cheat on this one, which I guess I'm allowed to do because you're recording this. Gustav Mahler, who, of course, is neither a philosopher nor a thinker, but is one of the most magical classical composers I've ever met. And I think there's a lot of philosophy and thought in, in his symphonies in particular. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The behavior that derails most leadership careers. Hubris. Your go-to activity when you're seeking rejuvenation. Uh, not sure I really have one. I think work and sleep in equal measures. Sometimes work is rejuvenating. Sometimes sleep is rejuvenating. Because you spotlighted Martin Luther King's leadership in your book, what's one trait of his that you most admire? It's got to be what we wrote about in the book, crucible making. That will make more sense to anyone who looks through the last chapter of the book, but crucible maker par excellence. Your synonym for the word heart. Essence. One big lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life. Uh, depth leads to breadth. It's okay to start narrow because if you go deep into something, then later it will integrate its way into the other parts of your life. It doesn't really help to start out broad. you got to start out narrow. Depth leads to breadth. Skill improvement you're working on right now. This will sound odd, but I, nothing really. What I'm trying to do, what I think about in every situation I find myself in is what can I offer that no one else can? And a quote that captures your life philosophy. Last question. There's a quote that I love very, very much. It comes from the physicist, Nobel Prize winning American physicist, Richard Feynman. And it's the very end of his appendix to the report into the Challenger disaster in 1986. And he ends it by saying, for a successful technology, reality must take precedence over public relations for nature cannot be fooled. And I've always thought that there's a lot of wisdom in that. Wow. Well, thank you. I get just tremendous feedback from our audience on the heartbeat round. And this is just another reason why those are beautiful and provocative answers. And thank you very much. I have one more question to ask you before we go. And let's get to that. Ashley, we have another tradition on the podcast where right before we close, I turn the stage over to our guests and ask them to make one final summary of all we've discussed. But this is literally the first time ever that I want to break that ritual. And instead, I want to read the final 
paragraph of your book, and words that are inherently spiritual in nature that struck me as being that, and words that actually offer profound validation for everything I think this podcast is about. So after I read what you so thoughtfully wrote, and I want to tell you personally that this just moved me to conclude the book with this. I shouldn't telegraph that to my audience, but it did. And so I want to read this to you and then ask you, what's the grand lesson you want us to take from your book? And so here we go. Leading and following are not abstractions. They're human interactions, human relationships. And their currency is the currency of all human relationships, the currency of emotional bonds and trust and of love. If you, as the leader, forget these things and yet master everything that the theory world tells you matters, you will find yourself alone. But if you understand who you are at your core and hone that understanding into a few special abilities, each of which refracts and magnifies your intent, your essence, and your humanity, then in the real world, we will see you and we will follow. And that, of course, is is an ending. And so it feels almost um, disrespectful to those words, which now I think have a wonderful life of their own to, to speak after them. But I suppose the big idea, what's the overall lesson? Each of us is uniquely magnificent. Let's live there. Thank you. Wonderful way to end this. I can't thank you enough, Ashley. And and as you uh, sort of hinted, we're going to have to have you back on <laughs> because there's so much more in your book that we didn't get a chance to cover, but we evolved into ways that I didn't expect that were just really, really enlightening. So on behalf of my entire audience, thank you so very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It was really a lovely conversation today. Thank you, Ashley. Sure thing. As we close out this episode, I want to commemorate our one-year anniversary. I am very proud of the fact that we've already built an audience in well over 100 countries and have attracted a long list of irrefutably exceptional leadership thinkers to be our guests. I thought I'd take this moment to emphasize that our goal with every episode is to, in some meaningful way, remind you that our traditional ways of leading and managing have run their course and that caring, supportive, and even nurturing leaders are going to be the big winners going forward. And as someone who makes my living as an author, speaker, consultant, and a coach, I launched this podcast so listeners like you could hear for yourself that the person who keeps saying we must lead from the heart is actually a pretty credible guy. In all seriousness, what I've discovered in all my years of managing people, not to mention a decade of studying employee motivation, is that feelings and emotions drive human behavior more than anything else and how leaders make their workers feel literally in their hearts plays a surprisingly dominant role in determining their engagement, loyalty, and productivity. So I hope very much that you'll reach out to me directly if I can help you in your organization or you personally. And I want to say thanks to each of you for listening in and for sharing us and introducing us to your friends. I also want to thank the people who help me every day, including the most generous person on the planet, Mr. Ken Boynton, and my friends, Susan DeRoche and Carrie Finnessy, And kudos to my webmaster, Randy Yant, not to mention my producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz. It's their attention to detail that helps ensure every episode comes out great. And as always, I lead you with the reminder that when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now. 